Welcome to the Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries, an organization that exists to connect the Christian faith with the realities of everyday life. As always and ever, I'm Scott Jones, your host, and we come to you every Friday to discuss, among other things, the contents of our weekly wrap-up posts, Another Week Ends, which is sort of like our Christian Cosmopolitan's grace-infused guide to the contents of the interwebs for the week. In just a moment, I'll be joined by some of the usual suspects to discuss the contents of Another Weekends. But first, I had the privilege of talking this week with Bart Campolo. Bart is the humanist chaplain at the University of Southern California and host of the podcast Humanize Me. On the Mockingcast for the first time, Bart Campolo, coming to us from California, humanist chaplain at University of... Southern California. Southern California. Which campus? USC, main campus. Like main the Trojans, campus, man. Yeah. You don't do satellites. They were, they were like, hey, Campolo, we're going to throw you out in the Irvine and see... No. Hey, d- well, don't be impressed because when people find out that I'm the humanist chaplain at USC, they're like, wow, lucky you. That must be a great job with USC. It is like... It is not a job. It is a volunteer opportunity. USC has the Hillel chaplain. They have the Catholic Center. They have a million Protestant denominations like Campus Crusade and all those people. And of course, all of them are supported by their home religion. I'm the secular humanist chaplain there. So like USC doesn't pay me. The they, nuns, the nuns. And I'm not talking Sally Field with flying things. I'm talking the, the non-observant types. They're not good with the fundraising sometimes. Well, at this stage in the game, what a lot of people think secular organizing or secular campus ministry is, is it's, they think it's, it's fighting with Christians or trying to convince people to stop believing in God. And so the secular community is not used to somebody like me who says, oh, no, 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 no. Like, I'm leaving all those people alone. Half this campus doesn't believe in God. And nobody's trying to kind of organize them and inspire them and nurture them to make the most of their lives by loving other people and by fighting for justice and by cultivating a sense of wonder and all the things that like, so what they don't understand is like, I'm not there to do church and state stuff. I'm not there to be militantly secular in in opposition to the supernaturalists. I'm just there to find all the secular kids and say, hey, let's create a community where we love each other because that's rational and where we try to make the world a better place because that's rational and where we cultivate a sense of gratitude because I've got all this interior empirical data that says that if you're thankful for the good things in your life, you'll be happier. So you could start RLD, rational love data. Here is, we're RLD. Come on in. What else do you need? And, and the truth of the matter is, is like when I was a Christian back in my Christian days and I would go and try to quote unquote evangelize somebody. I'd meet some kid, we'd end up striking up a conversation, you know, maybe the kid was struggling in some way. And I'd say, you know, you should come and check out my community. It's a lot of loving people. We do a lot of cool stuff together. You should be part of it. And they would come and they'd go, I love these people. Everybody's so nice. And you're doing all this good stuff. I want to be part of this community. What do I have to believe? And it was hard for them. It was hard for them because for those people, they had to believe a lot. And so the difference is in my world, I invite people into, a, you know, I'm building, I'm still building a community. But you just don't have to believe anything to get in it. There's a shorthand for that. It's called Episcopalianism. (laughs) So they could teach about smells and bells. I mean, they do that stuff really well. And a lot of our listeners are Episcopalians. And we have a kind of cross-pollination of evangelicals, mainline Protestants, 
people that would identify all sorts of other ways. So for people who don't know your context, you are the son of a guy who has touched a lot of lives, including my own Tony Campolo, who is one of the great Christians, and I think Christian speakers, ministers, prophets. So let me ask you this. We've all seen the sting with Redford. Is this, is you, you've kind of come out as an atheist. Is this the sting? And in 20 years, you're doing a new documentary, a new book, Father and Son Together Again, like in front of the prodigal son painting in the museum. Only if the money runs out. I don't believe in any supernaturalism, but my son always kids me. He says like, look, if the money ever really, like if you're really hungry, you just have to write that second book. I'm back. And you know, you'll be on tour. And so, no, it, there's no, there's no, this is, this is not, this is not a sting. This is just a, like, and probably, I mean, most of your listeners, if they're, if they're in that kind of space that you're in, where you're trying to like make Christianity make sense and you're, you're bringing in cool Krista Tippett and people like that, like sort of this open Episcopalian kind of like, Hey, we're, you know, multiple narratives and we're not exclusivist. And everybody who's trying on that project, there's this kind of gut level thing of like, I really want this to work because I want to stay Christian. And believe me, Scott, I wanted to stay Christian. It wasn't just my community and my family. It was also my identity and my income. It was my job. I was a professional Christian. But everybody that's doing that, I'm trying to stay Christian, I'm trying to stay Christian, has this lurking fear at the back of like, what if in the end I can't believe in a God who intervenes anymore? Or what if in the end, I don't believe that the Bible really is any more holy than any other book? Or what happens if it all falls apart? And so, you know, for somebody like me, it's it, some people say like, why did you reject God? And I'm like, I didn't reject God. It's not that I won't believe in God. It's that I can't. So you're not like, okay, I heard Reinhard Hooter, a theologian at Duke, give a lecture once, and he's, he became Catholic. And he was a famous kind of Lutheran Protestant theologian. And he said that I was an accidental Protestant, not an essential Protestant. There are some people that like, hey, the Pope, you know, smells and bells, Mary, they could never be a Catholic or be in union with Rome. They're an essential Protestant. He's like, I was an accidental Protestant in the Aristotelian sense. Like, you know, if you shave your head, that's one of the accents, one of the details. But I could become different religiously than them. So are you kind of like your own move beyond theism into sort of atheism, agnosticism, positive secular humanism, that sort of is it an essential move or an accidental move. Like there could be another chapter if, if something presents itself. I think that the most important thing that I would say is, is that, you know, like I started out, like I was drawn into Christianity as a teenager because it was a chance to be a part of this really wonderful community of people that were loving people and doing stuff and, 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 and reaching out in a beautiful way. And I, I, it appealed to me, the supernatural theology, the narrative of Christianity, was always the hard part for me. It was always difficult. It was for me, it was, it wasn't the, like, I didn't get into Christianity so I could go to heaven. Believing in heaven and hell and resurrection, like, that was the price of admission to be part of the community. But that stuff was always hard for me. And over time, it became harder. You know, I'm working in the inner city with very poor people. You're praying for stuff to happen and it just doesn't. I mean, like, nothing fails like prayer in the sense of, you know, you, you, you ask for things that are like within the realm of like what God should want to do, like healing like little children from cancer. You're not asking for something crazy and it doesn't happen. What's the craziest thing you ever prayed for? I didn't pray for much that was crazy. Never. I wasn't. No. Like you God, never prayed an adolescent. I hope this. Did you do really well with girls? Because you God, never prayed. You Scott, never prayed that. God didn't deliver on the little things. 
Like, like you couldn't count on God to like stop genocide in Rwanda. So like, if God's not going to step up and do something like everybody knows he should want to do, why is he going to care about me getting to second base with Sally Jones? Well, he shouldn't, but I mean, I, I think adolescents pray stuff like that, but you're an enlightened adolescent then. I mean, so that's good. I mean, and you know, I don't pray that stuff anymore, but so for talk- me, it just, for me, I, I, I was dialing down the supernaturalism throughout my Christian life, you know, and, and like I was becoming more, I passed through every stage of heresy. Like, you know, I became a universalist. I was okay. I was marrying gay people. I, I, I stopped believing dogs and cats living together. <laughs> I stopped believing that Jesus had to die on the cross in order for God to be forgiving. That seemed absurd to me. Like Jesus is telling everybody else to forgive without killing anybody. Why can't God forgive without killing anybody in the end? After turning it all the way down, I had this moment where I thought, there's nothing left. I mean, I had a bicycle accident and I had a brain injury, a concussion. And when I came out, of, when my brain finally healed, I was like, you know, I'm pretty sure that my identity is in my brain. Like you smash it against a tree and my essential personality changes. And so I'm thinking that when this brain breaks down, I'm thinking I won't exist anymore. And that was like, for, mo- for many people, that's not a huge and earth-shattering conclusion to go like, oh, when I die, I won't exist anymore. But for an evangelical Christian, like I didn't think of myself as being connected to my body. I thought I was like inhabiting my body and my spirit would go somewhere else. And so when I realized like, oh, I think this life is all there is. I think this is all we get. You know, my wife looks at me and she says, I think you better stop being a professional Christian because you don't, you don't believe in God anymore. How did your wife, Marty, take it? Like, was she like, okay, I was ready to be out five years ago. Yeah, she, I mean, she and I, I mean, our marriage has kind of like been a long conversation, and that sounds like the best kind of marriage, actually. And 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 sometimes she's a little ahead of me. Sometimes I'm a little ahead of her. And so, like, she would go ahead of me in terms of post-Christian thinking, and I would always try to come up with reasons to bring her back because, like, we had a lot of vested interest in staying Christians. Do you guys binge watch television shows at all? Very occasionally. Did, did your film or television or anything? Did your t- taste change? Pre- Again, like, don't kind of think of me leaving Christianity as like this one moment. Like, you know, people say to me, when did you lose your faith? I said, well, it started about 20 minutes after I accepted Jesus Christ as my personal Lord and Savior. Like it was, a, it was the death of a thousand cuts. The, the, the last God I believed in was just wonderful, Scott. You would have loved that God. I mean, it was just, it was just so, he did he, Give me the, who play, who plays this guy? He wasn't movies? responsible for any bad thing. He but who plays him? Is it gay people? Is it Morgan Freeman? <laughs> <laughs> who plays this guy? It was an ineffable spirit, man, but it was just beautiful, ineffable spirit. And, and the problem is, is that, you know, that God agreed with everything I thought. And I realized like, oh, you know, that the God that you invent just ultimately doesn't have any authority. And I realized like, that's what everybody's doing. Everybody's creating a God that works for them or that makes sense for them and changing it as we go along. And like you get divorced and all of a sudden God's okay with divorce and, you know, and you have a son who's gay and you work out a new theology so that gay people are okay. And you can make God do whatever you want him to do. But like, okay, so you talk about the death of a thousand cuts, right? And I think that most of my friends who've come out as gay or lesbian or have struggled with transgender stuff and making big decisions. They describe the thousand cuts, but then also like struggling in a world that's, you know, heterosexist, but coming out does have an effect. I mean, I'm saying like coming out, like what was the big difference yeah, in yeah, yeah, coming yeah. out and just saying, Hey, I'm just not, I'm not going to try to like fake it anymore. Well, I mean, for me, 
my wife, I think Marty would have probably preferred to just let it go quietly and not tell anybody. Like just because it, it it's challenging to people, it upsets people. There's you know there's a lot of disappointment, sadness in some people. The problem is is that I had been such a vocal Christian. I you know I was a traveling itinerant preacher. I, I, I there was no way that I could quietly walk away. But the other thing was is that what I loved about being a Christian was building communities in which I could bring in people that were lonely or broken or or hurt, and they would be enfolded by a community, and you could kind of see lives be transformed. I loved being a minister. I loved being a community builder. I loved being an evangelist and going up to a kid who was strung out on drugs and saying, I've got a better life for you. Or going up to somebody who's involved in a, in a life of kind of really self-defeating violence and saying like, listen, there's a better way than this. And so when I left Christianity, I still had all those values, and I still wanted to do all that stuff. And so the, the first question that I had was like, well, what do you do now? Or what do you do when you're a minister who doesn't believe in God? And, and so, you know, as I would talk to, so, 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 so first of all, like, I didn't feel like I, I had an option. People would say to me, like, you know, I was the kind of guy that people were always like, well, where are you at? Because I was always moving. So they're like, what do you believe this day? You know, nobody was surprised. I mean, you'd be shocked, Scott, like, because I'm a fairly, I was fairly high profile Christian. You'd be shocked at how many Christian leaders I know who don't believe in God. Name names. <laughs> yeah, dream on. Right now. 20 years ago, I was a safe place for gay Christians to come and talk, you know? And, and now I'm a safe place for, for, for post-Christians who are trapped in ministry. I mean, a lot of these people, it's not even a choice. Like, I thought I could make a life outside of Christianity, but for a lot of these folks who are like 50, 60 years old, they have pension plans, they have families, they will be cast out into the darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so, no, they have to keep their mouths closed. Is that Minnesota? Where is that? The darkness. Like, we figured out. That's, it sounds like, like, so it's interesting. Bonhoeffer in, in confessing. Yeah, do you really church. think Bonhoeffer believed in a act yeah. God at the end of his yeah. life? Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, he wrote, only the suffering God can help. And then he, he wrote this strange thing, you know, from prison and what the essay, the notes that have become that. He says, we need a religionless Christianity. But I feel like you're kind of spitting, and you're saying we need a Christianless religion. We need a kind of That's secular a religiosity. Yeah, people is. I mean, people are. We're spiritually wired. You know, like we want transcendence. You know, people sometimes say to me, like, "Oh, I bet you're embarrassed that when you were a Christian, you used to talk about." hearing God or feeling led by the spirit. I'm like, no, no, that stuff happened. Now I would explain it differently now. Like I would say like, yeah, that voice I heard in my head, like, I think that was something happening in my brain. But like, if, if you don't believe in transcendent experiences, you haven't used the right drugs or you haven't been to the right concerts or you haven't had sex with the right partner. Like, cause like there are these moments that are accessible to all human beings where they feel like connected to the world or connected to other people where they get swept up in a moment and they feel like something's happening here. Now, if you're in a church, when that happens, you're going to attach that transcendent experience. You're going to like, ah, that's God. And, and that's going to confirm that narrative. If you're in a mosque, it'll do the same thing for Allah. If, wherever you are, whatever your narrative is, these transcendent moments they confirm whatever kind of narrative you've got. Now, the question is like, do you still want to have transcendent moments? If you ask me, I go like, absolutely. I actually try to manufacture group experiences where people will feel connected to each other in, in a transcendent way. 
Now, I'm really open about like, this is this thing that I'm doing. Here's the mechanics by which it works. Like, there's no manipulation. In, like, there's no, there's no smoke and mirrors involved. Like, you go like, wait, are you saying that if a bunch of people stand together, jump up and down singing the same song about their values, that they will end up feeling closer to each other? I go like, as sure as you want to see the brain data? You want, to, right, you want to see the EKGs? What song is that? What song is that? And I'm willing to jump up and down right now. What is it? Is it Brown Eyed Girl? <laughs> no, it is not. I mean, that's funny because there are these people that, that run this thing called the Sunday Assembly, and it's kind of this atheist church thing. I, I, yeah, I know it. Yeah, I know and it. And they sing pop songs. And when I go, I, I visited them, and I'm sort of like, oh, you, you, you learned from traditional religions that you should sing songs together, but you have no idea why. The reason hymns and worship songs work are because we're singing songs that affirm our collective values and beliefs. And you sing songs that are in a key that groups can sing them together. Pop songs are not designed for group singing. And so I'm like, no, it is not Brown Eyed Girl. That song has no content and it's not a song meant to be sung chorally. But you go like, wait, are you telling that like when you go to a Liverpool football game and they're all singing You'll never walk alone together. That that affirms their identity as Liverpool Liverpoolians and as 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 uh, supporters of that team. And like, does that create a group identity? Does that create a transcendent moment? I'm like, have you ever been in a football stadium where people were singing? Of course it does. So the fact of the matter is, like, human beings are naturally religious. They're prone to believing in supernatural things. They're tr- they're looking for a narrative, a big narrative of the world into which they can that that'll help them make sense of the little narrative of their own life. Like, so I think that every religion does two things for people. It creates a cosmos where it says, this is the way the whole universe is. This is where we come from. This is where we're going. This is the meaning of it all. And it creates an ethos that says, because of this big narrative, you and I should live this way. This is the way we should treat each other in the here and now. And all I'm saying is like all those cosmoses, all those narratives that people made up when they didn't have a lot of information, they don't work very well once you get exposed to the rest of the data. So like the idea that like the universe was created by a creator God in seven days or the idea that like Jesus is, is, is like this atoning sacrifice and, and he rose from the dead. Like the more data you get, the more you go like, I don't really think people physically die and rise from the dead. Like there's no evidence to support that. So they're like, can you give me another narrative that'll inspire me? Can you give me another story that'll help me make sense of my life? You might be on the avant-garde, right, with left-wing Hegelians like Terry Pinkard and people like Zizek. Because I think the whole like Christianity-less Christianity religion is kind of an elite thing. I think that the mainstream thing is the opposite. It's more like, I'm into God, even some of the mythological language. I'm just not into religious institutions. This is where the traditional church is struggling. It's not all the sociological data says people aren't by and large, re- rejecting wholesale. It's amazing the amount of people that still say we believe in this kind of Bible. It's more like, hey, we're just, we can't handle institutional religious life because institutions are so broken and hard. You're kind of saying, hey, the problem isn't the institutions, it's the myth, and I can build a better mousetrap with well, better and, kinds and the of thing people. Is like, like, if you look, Scott, at like what happens to people in this society, like we've made so many advancements and we've got the internet and everybody and nobody wants to go to group meetings anymore and every people would prefer to stay home and listen to their stuff. And you go like, yeah, all those social trends and, 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 and we feel more connected because we, we have all our friends on our phone and Facebook and all this stuff. Like, and, and you go like, and how is it working? 
people thriving out there, people flourishing, everybody's depressed, everybody's isolated, people feel alienated and alone. Like, like people are on all sorts of meds. Like this new brave new world that we've got is great at producing consumer goods and experiences for people. But like, you know, it's not really working for people in a holistic way. Why are they so fed up with the church stuff? And they go like, yeah, part of it is like all the weird abuse and crazy stuff and bad pastures. And part of it is that the narrative at the core of it resonates with fewer and fewer young people. And more importantly, Scott, it resonates with fewer and fewer of the really smart, really gifted community building young people that used to be the ones that held that institution together. And so like it, 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 percentage-wise, there still may be a lot of people believing in God, but they're not the people that you need to make a church institution thrive. The smart ones are leaving. The more educated ones are leaving. The more capable ones are leaving. I think I see both trends. There are people like Cornel West, or David Brooks, Barack Obama, Kirsten Powers, John Polkinghorn, people that are some of the brightest and most accomplished people in our culture who faith has sustained them or newfound adult conversion has helped them become the kind of modern people that are of renown and significance that they are. So I think it, it it's probably not quite that simple. But I, I think that basically, right, this is a fair probably assessment, secular or Christian or Muslim or Hindu. You have, or, or let's just look at atheism. You have atheists like Nietzsche or Freud who have a modest anthropology. The human beings are, are a mixed bag and we need a lot of help and hope along the way. And then you have atheists maybe like your Bertrand Russells or maybe yourself who are saying now, like have a more robust anthropology. We actually, you know, things like grace are almost insulting because it says that we're more flawed than we are. I have a pretty modest, I'm pretty modest myself. Like I'm just like any theology that starts out by saying like your filthy rags worthy of uh, objects of wrath, worthy of damnation when you come out of the womb. And, and the only possible hope for you is the benevolence of this God who will love and support you even though you don't deserve it. I'm like, that's a pretty anti-human, that's a, that's a pretty negative anthropology. Yeah, but isn't that just like birth trauma? I mean, all the stuff we know about birth trauma and early human development, that basically if you get acceptance as a gift in zero to two, with all your libidinal rage and stuff like that, then you generally, you're going to have some flaws, but you're going to make your way in the world better. And if you get acceptance as a reward, if you please me, you'll be accepted. It isn't maybe all that mythological language. It's just a way of saying, hey, at the heart, what we want is unconditional, one-way, unilateral love when we're the most fragile and most aware of finitude. I don't think that's where Calvinism comes from. I think Calvinism comes from like, look, we're trying to create a... a, 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 a a system by which we can really control people and keep them connected to each other and, and, and create a, a coherent system. And what we have to do is we have to create a motivation where, where you go like, you must do what we say or you will die forever. Well, first of all, it comes from Switzerland, which is not the only reason we should resist it. So like, how, did, how does your own like, religious journey shape your conversations with your dad, which you guys have a movie coming out? Yeah, there's a document, there's a book. There's like, he and I have a great conversation. We've been having a conversation for a long time. How often do you talk now? Weekly? Oh, I don't know. Every couple, couple, three times a week. Like we talk all the time. What do you talk about most? Well, I mean, we talk about our, our my kids. We talk about his health. Uh, we talk about m- the work that I'm doing. I mean, my dad sort of thinks that the work that I'm doing 
is really the best you can do if you don't believe in God. Like, his, you know, the, I mean, that's a great question. Like, there are a lot of people out there it's, that, that are never going to believe in God. We all know this. And so the question is, like, what do you want those people to do? Like, what, you know, I always say to my Christian friends, like, what do you want me to do? Like, it, like I mean, I don't believe any of it. Like, it, none of it makes is compelling to me at all. And so I go, like, what do you want me to do? Like, do you want me to do nothing? Or do you want me to organize people like myself to, to experience connection and to pursue goodness in a really in a really intentional way. We all want acceptance from, you know, our parental sources, like our parents. Like, so it's going to feel good that your dad can yeah, validate my, my, that. My, yeah, sure. My dad looks at me and he says, listen, you know, he sometimes says like, I think you're st- like, I think you're an anonymous Christian. I think you're still a Christian. I, like, I know you don't believe any of this stuff, but he said like, you're doing the work of God. What's the thing that you're so glad you've gotten rid of in the Christian, like if the Christian... Thing is like a, a, a set of golf clubs or something. What's the club that you're so glad is not in the bag anymore? And what's the club that, I mean, you still do a lot of the stuff you did organizationally, but what's the club that getting rid of it that you wish you still had? Cause there's sometimes a shot like under I mean, a tree. That's or, I mean, the, I mean, what's easy is the thing that I'm, I was happiest to get rid of is I'm happiest to get rid of having to make excuses for a God who never shows up. Like, you know, somebody's, Kids dying of cancer. Somebody's somebody's husband gets hit by a car. The, the, the earthquake in Haiti happens, and all the all the theological gymnastics that people have to go through to like maintain that God is really loving, that He is actually involved in our lives, and you know, and yet that's okay. All those gymnastics that was exhausting to me. Always having to make excuses for a God who never shows up, and I don't miss that. I don't miss that at all, and I also don't miss. The experience of getting somebody turned on to a really different value system and then having them not be able to be fully enfolded in the community because they couldn't believe in magic. And they would just be like, I love your community. I love your values. I love what you're doing. That stuff doesn't make any, I, I can't do it. And so I love that like now if somebody loves my community or loves my values, there's no impediment for them to be a part of it. The thing I miss about Christianity, it's the money. Like the church is this really organized superstructure. There were places for me to speak. There were people that like had 10% of their income out of their wallets already because the Bible told them to. And all I had to do was convince 10%. You're among good Christians. Wow. I'm just Don't saying, tell like, the Episcopal priest listening. <laughs> I raised money for missions. I raised money for um, helping poor people. I raised money for all kinds of really good stuff because these people, it was part of their religion to feel that they had to give to something. And I, and there was a structure and there were – I could go to any town in the country and call the church person and say like, hey, I'm trying to do this thing. And they'd be like, yeah, come in and talk to me. Like this this incredibly organized network that was with, with, with all sorts of institutional heft behind it. When I stepped out and decided that I wanted to try to help build community for people who don't believe in God, who can't believe in God. There's almost nothing. And, and what there is in the atheist, secular, all that kind of organized, so much of that is anti-theist. So much of that is like creating an identity on the basis of like what we don't believe and who we think are stupid. And, but when it comes time to like create a community that's based on simply a secular worldview that sort of logically and rationally leads to a commitment to love and, and justice and wonder – there wasn't much to work with. There, like, like I would go to these atheist clubs and they were a bunch of like, you know, 
Dungeons and Dragons playing guys with Richard Dawkins books under their arms, like talking about how stupid it is to believe in God. And I was like, you can't build a community around that kind of negative agenda. Like at some point you have to say like, okay, so we don't believe in God. Like what are we committed to? What kind of world do we want to make? Like, like what do we want to do with our lives? How do you make the most of your life? But I'm claiming my safe space right now. As a kid, I played Dungeons and Dragons and it actually helped me believe in God. And Stranger Things, Netflix, you know. Like I'm not here to mess with people. Like the only people whose Christianity I want to dismantle are people whose Christianity is hurting them. And I didn't know this. I just found out recently that you were named for Karl Barth, which is which you can tell the story in a minute, but if you want to. But do you feel like this is why the new atheism fails? I mean, Karl Barth used to tell his students about Schleiermacher, who was like his you know, great 19th century theologian, his like alter ego. He said, nobody can hate here until they are first tempted to love here. And dare I say, are tempted to love and love again. Is that why some of like the Dawkins and the Hitchens stuff, it's not as effective because like, it's kind of like, this is stupid, right? But you're a guy that like has loved there. <laughs> like, and so do you feel like this is one of the resonances that? Yeah. And, and, and first of all, first of all, you will not get me to say a bad word about Dawkins or Harris or anyone, even though I don't do any of their stuff. Because in any movement, there's always the people that have to step out first and they have to be militant just to make space for them to stand. I mean, there was a time in this country where to be an atheist, get you fired from jobs. Like you still can't really run for national office as, as an, as a, a secular person. You have to like, you have to, you know, put some gloss around it. You have to pay lip service to, to God in order to be viable in politics. And so what, what's ha- I mean, that's changing, but not, it's not there yet. And so when, Dawkins and Hitchens and Harris, when they wrote those books and, and created that firestorm, it's, it's sort of like the early gay activists who had to be really like they had to be wearing the leather and stand, you know, and like we're queer and we're here, like the, you know. And then the second wave comes behind them and they go like we're just like you, like we just want to be married like you guys, and look at us, like we're, we're Ellen DeGeneres, and like you like us, but there is no Ellen DeGeneres. If there isn't somebody out in front of her throwing fire, making space for her. And so like a guy like me who comes along and goes like, look, the best strategy for helping people to think rationally, the best strategy for getting away from really dangerous, superstitious beliefs like that we're in and everybody else is bound for hell. And so like it's, and it's a lot easier, by the way, to like not care about people if you think that they are ultimately doomed to hell anyway. Um, like there are a lot of really dangerous things about religion. But the best way to like overcome those dangers is not over the long haul at this stage in the game to fight with people or to attack them or to denigrate them or to mock them. The best thing to do, like I know so many people that stay in Christianity, not because the narrative makes sense for them, but because it's the only community that they know where they can be part of a group of people that are deeply committed to on a daily and weekly basis pursuing goodness. So if you really want to help those people, don't mock them. Create an alternative. That doesn't require them to pretend to believe things that they really don't believe. When you find someone, though, that like, it looks like it's working for them and they're a reasonably intelligent person. My dad. Like, like Trip Fuller. Yeah. Or your dad. Yeah, Trip are you Are you a little bit like, come on. When I listen to your Trip Fuller interview, just full disclosure, I, I wrote my first religious joke. It's like there's a process theology guy and, and an atheist slash agnostic that go into a bar. They saddle up, they order their drinks, and they are going to have a conversation about how much of religion, of traditional religion, Nicene Creed, all that stuff, you've got to get rid of 
to be a sensible modern person. The process guy says 98%. The atheist says 100%. And they fight a lot about the 2%. Because <laughs> you're kind of like, hey, man, come on. Do you really? I, I feel like when you see a reasonable person, I feel like, though, don't you a little bit like, come on. Like, are you the, the evangelist comes out and you're like, come on. You really don't. They're happy. I'm happy. But like the truth of the matter is like I look at a guy like Trip Fuller and one of the things I think of is the only re- the only come on for me is, is is I'm like if you really believe that there's a supernatural being that does anything like fine what doesn't make sense to me is when people have really like the god the god is just a word for universe and and Jesus is just a, a phrase that suggests redemption. And like there's real like they don't really believe in heaven and hell anymore, but they're still using like these progressive Christians who still use Christian language, even though there's no supernaturalism left in them. And the only reason I want to pull them over is I'm like, you know what? That language you're using lets you continue to sing your songs and have your churches. But it means that there's all these other secular people and you have so much to offer them. You know so much about fellowship. You know so much about ministry. You know so much about community and you're denying yourselves to the people that need you most. And so like the world doesn't need another Scott Jones, doesn't need another trip forward. Like like, there are so many hip, cool, we've worked our way around all the ugly stuff of Christianity Christians, but just on the other side of the border, there are all these people that are like sheep without a shepherd. And so like, yeah, sometimes I'm like, come on, not because like you're stupid, but because there's all these people you could help. There's all this, these, there's all these people that are looking for pastoral care, that are looking for somebody who can articulate the, the, the true story of evolution in a way that makes them want to be a better person. And I'm like, man, a guy like Trip Ford could be so useful to young people who don't believe in God. And you go like, but he's really helping all these people, all these theological geeks that are like working on all these complicated ways to still be Christian. And I go like, yeah, those guys have a billion people to help them. None of them play. I don't know any of those guys that grew up playing Dungeons and Dragons. And the true story of evolution, G.K. Chester, the everlasting man. I mean, that's done. That's like, that's passe. So Bart, okay, fantasy football. You've got to get rid of somebody on the atheist secular team, right? That's just like, it's killing us. And you want to draft somebody from, from the religious team, any world religion. Who do you swap out? Well, the first thing is I never call myself an atheist and I never will. Like no intelligent person is, is a hundred percent sure that there is no God. Like, I, like technically I am agnostic. Technically, okay, I like that. Because I can't prove That's it. why I said atheist slash agnostic yeah. slash secular I never, goodness I team. Myself, I don't call myself agnostic either because it makes it sound like I'm not sure. And I, I, I'm not unsure. Like, I, I'm, I mean, technically I'm agnostic about Justin Bieber. Justin Bieber very well could have deposited $5 million in a Swiss bank account with my name on it. I have no I have no way of proving that's not true. That could have happened. He has the money. He has my name is in the, is in the phone book. Like he could have done that. Now the truth is that could very well have happened. I can't prove it's not there. All I can tell you is I don't make a single decision in my life on the basis of being a millionaire because I have no evidence to suggest that it's that that's happened. So I'm just fascinated. Your first reference is Justin Bieber. I'm just saying that's amazing. Yeah, right. Well, you know, here you go. L, I mean, yeah, I don't know. There's a lot of pop stars that t- says a lot about you. Rorschach, dude. So functionally, I am an atheist with respect to those millions, but technically I'm just agnostic. Like I, I'm not sure it could, I'm not saying it's, I can't prove it's not true. When it comes to God, I have no reason to believe that there is a benevolent being that is like moving the universe in a direction in a willful and, and, and conscious way. I have no reason to believe that. There's no evidence for that, that I've, that's, that's compelling to me. But like, uh, you know, 
who knows? Like I call myself a secular humanist because I'm secular. It means I don't have any evidence or have any reasonable belief in, in any kind of supernatural force. And I'm a humanist because I'm really committed to becoming the best human being I can become. Like I got values and I'm pursuing them in a hardcore way. So is it fair to say the person you would take from the religious team and get them over to the secular goodness team is Justin Bieber? Just for just the entertainment, what is the drug? You know, who would you take? Oh, uh, who do I want? That's a great question. I like I've never thought about it. Um, you know, I, I guess I guess you know who I deep down I really want. I really want Brian McLaren. And I and I've looked Brian right in the eye and said, "Man, you are trying to retrofit a submarine to fly. You are taking an ancient religion based on a crazy text that everybody knows is completely full of mess." And you're trying to make that into a new religion that's good for gay people and women and poor people. And I'm like, you know what? I, I have no doubt that given enough time and enough energy that you guys can come up with a form of Christianity that can, that, 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 that can accomplish all those things. But wouldn't it be easier rather than trying to retrofit a submarine to fly to just start from scratch and build an airplane? Like to come up with a way of life that does all those things from scratch. And that's what secular humanism is. When I see the amazing ways in which Brian makes Christianity palatable. I think like, gosh, give that guy some decent raw materials and he could win so many people into a better way of life. Or maybe he couldn't. I don't know. Maybe like on some level. Sure he could. Of course he could. But how do you know he'd be Brian McClellan? I just don't know that about anybody. I don't know. Because I was Bart Campolo and I'm still Bart Campolo. Yeah, but for you. I'm an impulse person. Like my my faith changed an inch at the time. Yeah, it probably, but I think like nobody, I just don't know that anybody, you, know, you can't just do Frankenstein spiritual monster. Well, if we could do it, it's like the Captain America super soldier. We shoot a little secularism. You can, maybe he can't without that myth making thing. You know, who knows? I just look at it. Like, everybody I've is read, so I, listen, particular. I've read his books. I've read his books. And I like, and what I see is somebody who takes really good ideas and then, and then reverse engineers them so that they seem like they're coming out of the Bible. But the good idea didn't come out of the Bible. He's working it back in the Bible so he can stay connected to that community. Like when you figure out what makes people flourish, instead of reverse engineering it to some like age old myth, like, like just build something with that. And so like, yeah, no, I have no doubt that Brian McLaren would make a wonderful secular humanist. I have no doubt that Trip Fuller would make a wonderful secular humanist. I have no doubt there are a lot of people that I would love to have come over, not because I think they're doing harm in Christianity. As a matter of fact, I think Brian's process of making Christianity a better religion, he's like, look, there, there are billions of people that are, that are going to believe in God. I want to make them better. I want somebody who's really good at helping people figure out how to love each other. And that's why I want Brian McLaren because he's one of the best figure out how to love each other people I've ever known. He's good with people. And the people I want to be working with secular young people are people that know how to inspire them to pursue goodness as a way of life. Uh, who would you trade from the atheist or agnostic or secular goodness team? Somebody that's unaffiliated. Oh gosh. There's like, there's like, you know, there's so many people doing so much damage by attacking religion. But like, pick any one of them, like just anybody that's, that thinks that you're going to build a better world by taking people who believe stuff that they didn't choose to believe. Nobody chooses what they believe. We believe what we believe, you know, like it, it makes it, it, people, things make sense to people because that's what makes sense to them. And so like the idea of attacking somebody because their mother and their brother and their sister and everyone in their town told them that this is true. Like, listen, you, that would be, that's like attacking a kid for believing in Santa Claus. Like, What's a kid going to do? Everybody around them tells them this is true. And they, and they trust these people. Of course they believe it's true. 
And so Santa, and Santa Storm- Claus punched somebody at the Council of Nicaea for not believing in the divinity of Jesus. That's the best. Thing. That's what you could do. Secular Christmas. Hey, kids, this is what Jesus does. He makes you deck heretics. What I'm telling you is I want to get rid of anybody who thinks that the best way to make a better world is by making fun of people or by attacking people for beliefs that they didn't choose and that they cannot choose to simply walk away last from. Que- and so, la- last question. Yeah. Because okay. yeah, right. you, 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 I got, I got go. you do a lot of speaking and you did a lot of speaking. I did a lot of speaking. I don't do it. Nobody invites me anymore. When, when, like, what's the difference like after you're at some big Christian conference and the f- first 10 minutes after the talk, right? What's the difference as a Christian evangelist at the conference? And now let's say you get a big, I've seen a couple of the talks you've given like at secular student groups and stuff. What's the difference in the 10 minute post game after the talk? Almost none. So, Almost none. I mean, the truth of the matter is, is that there are a lot of people out there that are looking for an approach to life, a way of, a, a way of thinking like this is what I think happens. This is where I think we came from. This is where, what I think happens when we die. This is what I think we're, what was the foundation of good and evil or what's right and wrong. This is the best way to live a good and happy life. This is the pathway to my fulfillment and, and actualization and flourishing. There are people looking for that, obviously, in every, in every corner of, of, of the world. Um, and when I get up and talk about the way in which I am living my life or the way in which I think would work for them, people come up afterwards and some of them go, this is why I don't think that way would work for me. And then a lot of them come up and go like, tell me more. And that's what happened when I was a Christian too. The fact of the matter is, is what, pe- what, what people respond to is somebody who seems to be thriving, somebody who, who seems to be excited about life and who seems to be living with purpose and meaning. And wherever people do that, whenever people do that, they'll attract people who are going like, man, I've been looking for something like that. And so it's not really that much different. I guess the big difference is in my heart because now when I sell people a worldview, when I sell people a way of life, I'm confident that when they go off to college and they take a science course, or when they go off to college and they take a psychology course, or when their marriage falls apart, or when like, some, their child gets cancer, I know that the, the worldview I've, sold, I've, I've given them won't just won't crumble, or, or won't seem crazy, or they won't have to fight the facts. And so the, only, the difference isn't with them. The difference is with me. I'm a lot more comfortable talking about goodness that's grounded in common sense. All right, where can our listeners like, hear more of your stuff? Like for, for folks who are intrigued and want to keep the conversation going with you. I have a podcast called Humanize Me that you can find it on iTunes or anywhere else you find podcasts. Um, I have a website, bartcampola.org, which tells people who want coaching or counseling or people who want to read the blog or check out the podcast or want to know about the humanist chaplaincy at USC. So bartcampola.org. The other thing is at bartcampola.org, there's a place where it says contact Bart. And if you hit it, it just goes to my email. It just sends me an email and I write back. And so if people want to find me, I'm that okay, easy I heard find. a response in like two hours. So this really works. I'll tell you. Evidence-based research. Right on, Bart, brother. Th- hey, it's good talking with Thanks you. Thanks so much. And I hope we can talk again sometime soon. Yeah, yeah. Talk to you later, Ray. All right. Bye-bye. Back on the Mockingcast, 
a man who's been eye-high in magazine editing, sitting in for David Zoll, who is nurturing his child like a good modern father. Baby Zeitgeist. Baby Zeitgeist. <laughs> Thomas is here. Ethan Richardson joining us today. Hey, Scott. How are you? What's going on? Doing all right. I'm doing all right. I'm still still in the um, sort of magazine editing phase. I'm kind of treading water at this point, but I think it's it's out of my hands and into better hands with the art guys. So it's good oh, I to be you're here. Say, I thought you were going to say it's in the Lord's hands, but no, the no, art guys. No, no, absolutely not. It's with the art director. And this is the mental health issue, which will be out in we- several weeks, right? In yep. a couple of weeks. Yep. Looking forward to reading it. And... As always and ever, Sarah Condon from Houston, Texas. Hey, guys. How are you? Good. We're good. Trekking along into the school year. And this is Cleaning Lady Day, This is Cleaning Lady Day. This is a day when I think about leaving my husband for our cleaning lady because I love her so much. That is saying something. (laughs) Well, uh, we've got, we're chock full. I mean, our listeners just heard a, a, a lengthy conversation with myself and Bart Campolo, which we'll... Some of our content this week actually ties into, but first, Ethan, let's talk phones. Yeah, so <laughs> Alan Jacobs wrote this great piece for The Atlantic about going back to a dumb phone, which if you have looked into the technology issue at all, someone very close to Mockingbird has also tried to do with similar results. The operative word is tried. Yeah, yeah, exactly. He So Jacobs got rid of his iPhone, got rid of most of his social media, and for the most part, felt like he uh, was was liberated by the decision. But then he talks about this punked MP01 dumb phone, which I don't know if you guys like clicked on the link, but it is like really cool looking. Mm-mm, I didn't look at it. No, I should look at it. I didn't see uh, it. Yeah. It's like really trendy looking. He sort of talks about how like the, the desire to disconnect or sort of detox from technology winds up really just being a stopgap. And what we end up doing is, and I'm outing Dave Zoll here, but we end up having our smartphone in our left pocket and our dumb phone in our right pocket. So uh, we end up sort of living this divided life where we're still we're still tethered in some way. This punk phone is 300 bucks. I know, I was looking at that. It's crazy. It is beautiful, though. I mean, the design is really, yeah, it's quite beautiful. But yeah, 300 bucks is not. I don't know that it's quite beautiful. I don't know how to put the modifier. I don't even, it's, it's, it's not unattractive, but geez, maybe I just have high standards with regard to phones. <laughs> so you all are iPhone users, yeah, right? Yeah. 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 Totally. As am I. Do you find that, I, like, that your level of distractibility i'm how much is the phone and how much is what you're doing or where you're at in life like because i find there are sometimes where i'm on my phone a ton and sometimes i'm not on my phone a lot and i generally think it's more to do with how engaged i am in the present moment like i i don't feel like it if i'm engaged in whatever's going on in life at the moment that i'm like oh, i want to stop this and you know get tethered back to the netherworld of the interwebs. I, I think more like it's when I'm in an escapist or frazzled or fragmented, non-attention, you know, like dr- focused mood that it becomes a tool to express that. Yeah. It's so I, this is, it's such a strange memory, but so Facebook really took off when I was in college. So it was 10 years ago. And I can remember where I was standing when it occurred to me that I was like in the present, but I was thinking about what I was going to post on Facebook. 
And it was such a creepy feeling to me. Like, how can I get to my device and post on Facebook? Um, and now that happens all the time and I'm not creeped out by it at all. <laughs> Cause I got over being creepy. I mean, it, I got, I got over it being creepy. It's still totally disturbing when I think about it in those terms. But, um, yeah, when I read this, I, I just thinking about not having my phone, like, um, he wrote about how he would forget when he had, you know, gotten off the iPhone, he, he would forget that he, um, he would forget his dumb phone as he calls it at home. And I thought that would be such a miracle. Cause that's happened to me with my iPhone, like maybe like less than five times. And every single time it feels kind of awesome to be out without it. So I don't know. So Scott in, um, with what you just said, if I'm like talking to you and you like look at your phone, is that because I'm just not like, I'm not worthy of your attention? It could be that, or I might not have taken my ADHD medicine or it might be waning. <laughs> its effect might be waning. There could be several reasons. Okay. But, so don't necessarily, you know, think that you're the victim first. Okay. Or that you're the, you're the problem. Yeah. I mean, it's funny because like, um, my wife, Hannah and I, we live out in the country and we sort of have this, like this faux agrarian existence, you know, like we live out in the country, but I mean, when we, when you get down to it, that's the most, that's the most hipster thing I've heard said at least all, all week. Yeah. We have a faux agreement. We're oh, Wendell Berry water. At least he said faux though. You know what I mean? Like my inner Mississippian is like, do you have a combine? So. <laughs> I like combines. Yeah. But it, when you come down to it, it's, it's exactly the same. Like we sit on our couch and we watch, like we stream Netflix while also like, like, trolling facebook you know um it's like our lives have have become you know two or three screen experiences at any one time well it looks like none of us are gonna get (laughs) 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 so hey go to a different podcast for another organization to pitch this thing you used to call me on my cell phone day night when you need my love call me on my cell phone Ethan, tell us where is God on the small screen? Speaking of screens. Well, um, one that they mentioned right at the end is the only one that I've actually seen that they talk about. But this article in the New York Times is talking about where we find religion, where God is on TV these days. And the one that I've seen is Rectify, which I think is amazing. But yeah, one thing they say right off the bat is that despite the fact that, you know, 77% of people say that, you know, religion is important in their lives and uh, despite the fact that we, we're constantly hearing numbers about the decline in belief, uh, there's still a, hu- it's a huge like, part of everyday American life uh, and part of life that we often don't see on television. Uh, but they go through a lot of shows, one of which is Who Lose the Path? Love that show. It's, it's so good, you guys. It's so, it's so good. And like, just in the subject of belief and, and, and unbelief is fascinating. I, I, I think, I mean, and I haven't seen all these shows, I've seen some of them, but, the, but the path is probably, um, people who don't believe people who are, are like for all practical terms, atheists of this cult 
are the ones who are treated the most poorly. I mean, it it is really fascinating. It's like this 60s cult, and it's based on this system of ladder rungs that you go up, and it's a fantastic show. Like Amway. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly, yes. So. I mean, one of the things they, they bring in is is the the unreality of having one religious character who always comes in and sort of plays the like um, the morality the morality figure you know um, instead it's really interesting to have a Christianity and they talk about Friday Night Lights and the the Christian heavy metal band Crucifictorious yeah. um, but but just this you know with the path and the leftovers there's this uh, something unexplainable. And people are on the brink, trying trying to navigate their life between uh, belief and unbelief. Yeah, yeah. You know what's fascinating they didn't talk about in this article was, um, and I was thinking of this when they were talking about sort of the one morality-based religious, usually Christian figure, is... Uh, Sorry, is reality television. I mean, because it's, you know, I watch all these dating shows and every dating show has like the one woman that shows up. Not that there's anything wrong with this, but she's like a 33 year old virgin and she's usually like the first to make out with the guy. And it's like this whole narrative, you know, like now that they have these, we've been doing reality dating shows long enough that there's like a type that gets filled in every season. And so it's. Uh, what would it's, be the cutoff where you wouldn't have to preface it with not that there's anything wrong? 33, 32. <laughs> At what point, like, is it like if it was 27? It's, like, it's what 35. It, 33, it's th- 35 35 okay. for me. At that point, it gets weird. So, yeah, okay. just just naming it. Yep. Yeah, I mean, they mentioned the leftovers. They mentioned some, and one of the things they I thought the article said that was interesting is that TV often does better with fictional religions, like like in Leftovers, Game of Thrones, Battlestar Galactica. Mm-hmm. You know that, that some of these serial dramas actually investigate the religious dimension of life by making a kind of fictional portrait of things that are parallels to our world, but slightly different. I mean, sometimes you know, I was, I was talking with on the show a couple my, a weeks ago with Rebecca Schiff, the short story writer, and she said, you know, that sometimes it's easier to tell her own story, filtering it through fictional characters because you have almost have more access to telling the experiences. You know, you can get closer to them sometimes. So sometimes fiction is not stranger than truth, but clearer sometimes, or at least more illuminating. And the, the thing related to that is this really interesting piece from The Atlantic, which tells us about uh, why people are having a tough time getting to church. Ethan, why? Well, they give us three reasons. Um one is like this is not the the one that he said was the or that Emma Green said was the most interesting, but I think it is. It's logistics, you know. That in fact there aren't a whole like it's not like all the people who aren't going to church are are feeling an animosity towards church. It's just that maybe they feel like they should go to church and they just can't find the time, you know, which I totally relate to. Another one was like institutional mistrust, you know, the sense of like. Uh, belief institutionalized has done more harm than good you know then the third one that she spends the most time talking about is kind of this idea that like there's there's actually more of a revival going on than the numbers tend to show us these institutions are declining on the whole but in some in some sections it actually shows like that there is a greater religious fervor um in like in a small number, in a, like, but a significant number of people. Yeah, it's, got, it's like you've got a big chunk of people that don't attend any religious observant practices. Then you've got 
a big chunk that do and a big the, among the big chunk that do a big chunk of them are saying they're doing it more mm-hmm. which right. is really interesting yeah i mean it's almost like saying the fact that we're going to that that faith has has brought people to church to me it, it doesn't it doesn't disavow the idea by saying that logistics have have taken people away from church you know it's like um yeah, faith may have brought you there, but at the same time, like with with busy lives and and a crazy work schedule, um, or just being lazy, like you find yourself like actually not being able to do it. You know? Yeah, I kind of wonder if anybody is lazy anymore. Like, really? I mean, I feel like I don't know anyone who's actually lazy. I feel like you know what I mean. I feel like I know a lot of people who lead very intense lives. I liked this piece just because I think it points to some grace that's happening with people. They don't go to church because they feel like they have to go to church. And I actually think that's a really good thing. It certainly makes those of us who are in the business of church um, anxious that there are less people there, but, um, but the people are there really want to be there. Um, But I, my husband and I talk a lot at home when people have babies about how they they'll show up then really sporadically. I mean, most people have babies. Like, trust me, if I weren't married to the priest, after I had my babies, we wouldn't be at church for a year. I mean, it's a lot to get kids, like little bitties to church. But people have babies and then they'll show up like a couple of Sundays like right after they have it. And they're like, we've decided we're going to, you know, there's like, there'll be this like resolution moment where they're like, we're going to do it. And I often find that the people who have like these re- resolution moments with the priest and the priest's wife are the people who then just don't come very much. Right. But it's the people who kind of like we made it, you know, like another Sunday in the books that don't seem to feel that pressure, that legalism that they have to show up, that there's this expectation that everyone has to be dressed nicely or whatever. It's just easier for them to come to church. So, yeah, you know, the thing that I I read an article, I I mean, it's a blog post by Tom Rayner who wrote Simple Church and has written a lot of stuff, but, and he said the biggest thing that pastors don't understand about church attendance and sociology is that the, is that this very fact that so many people who are who would self-identify as Christians and committed just go to church less. So, you know, two decades ago or 15, they might have gone, you know, four Sundays a month a lot of times, at least three a lot of times, you know, maybe one time in August, it's a two Sunday month because they're traveling. But now the two Sunday month is a lot more regular. And that person doesn't think they're less committed than the person that went three or four times. It's So it's not a, it's not a, a conscious sort of, we're more detached from the community. It's just what their connection is, their connection between faith and communal practice and showing up with a community, is it's, it's more tenuous than it used to be. And the other thing I think is just interesting is that I think we have this narrative that America started out as this hyper-religious country. I mean, the, the earliest, the highest, the high point of church attendance in this country was the early 1960s. You know, in the 19th century, people went to ch- a lot fewer people went to church and went less often. So, I mean, we kind of had this view that, you know, we're on a steady decline. Actually, our religious spike was in the last century and later in the last century. So I always find something. I love the conclusion of it. The survey offers evidence that at least some Americans can find worship services less relevant than other things they could be doing with their time, or perhaps they're too hard to make time for. But the biggest takeaway is the variety of religious experience in America. Just as some people are drifting away from religion, others are moving toward it. And no matter what they might do on Sunday mornings, many people seem to find religious thinking still relevant to their lives. Yeah, that word, I got to say, Scott, though, that word is like, I wrote that word down relevant because that's the word every freaking church conference I go to. It's like, how do we make the church more relevant? You know, like, how do we make it more relevant in people's lives? 
And um, it was so interesting that they used that word twice at the end because there's not really a way to make the church more relevant, right? That's what we learn over and over again. When we try to make the church more relevant, maybe temporarily you're going to see a boost, but really it's, a, it's about preaching the gospel. And just lastly, I wanted to draw attention to something for the nerds among us. This is a, because a, uh, again, I, like at my conversation with Bart Campolo previous to our roundtable here was really interesting. And one of the things that was was interesting about it, at least I thought it was interesting, is the way you understand. I think we all project our struggles on everybody. So it, so if, if your struggles are, hey, I can't make sense of in light of scientific data and what we now know in a sort of you know modern post-Alignment world, faith doesn't make sense for people. Well, it doesn't make sense for some people, and that's really true. But this is a, a, a book... A book review called Battling the Gods, Our Atheism is Different, is the subtitle by David Bentley Hart. It's a review he did of a book by Tim Whitemarsh. He basically, this book, Battling the Gods, is kind of arguing, it's just trying to describe the atheism of antiquity. And Hart is pretty critical of the book, and he's basically saying that he kind of looks at atheism in antiquity with with very modern prejudices, and that it's it, that his narrative is so shaped by trying to make modern naturalism and atheism look like it's got this long pedigree, when it, the story is much more complicated. But he says this towards the end, In every age and land there have been skeptics and unbelievers, but modern secularism has nothing to do with that. Most modern post-religious persons are not rationalists. They lack faith precisely because they are no less credulous than most people throughout time have been, and so no less prone to accept the prevailing prejudice of their age. And so he just talks about how basically there are skeptics and believers in every age. And it's funny because in the ancient world, Christianity, as, as Fleming Rutledge points out in the introduction to her book about the crucifixion, that Christianity looked secular. It looked atheistic. It, di- it didn't look religious because, uh, because it was such a demythologizing pro- project, worshiping n- n- this transcendent God, but yet one that was revealed in a cross. So it sort of was it was was different than the the sort of tribal pagan deities, more transcendent and more imminent all, all at once. So that just being said, I think that we're always tempted to think that ours is the most challenging age for the reception of the gospel, and it it's not because there's no more you know anytime someone comes to faith, it's a miracle akin to resurrection from the dead. And and once you're dead, it doesn't matter if you're dead, modern, dead, pre-modern, you are, it's like being, you're not partially pregnant. I mean, it's kind of, you're all dead and you need not just resuscitation, but resurrection. That being said, let's talk about the ideal day. Let's. Yeah, yeah. Can I can I introduce this one? You may. About Lady Eudora Welty. Um, so this is the little quirky piece from the Charlotte Observer by a writer named Danny Powell. And it's uh, based on an interview that um, I think it's Miss Powell did with uh, Eudora Welty like 20 years ago. But she said that Welty's favorite question she asked her, and if you're not familiar with who Eudora Welty is, then we're not friends. She's a very famous uh, writer. (laughs) Ethan knows who Eudora Welty is. She's a very famous writer from Mississippi, The Optimist Daughter, Delta Wedding, The Ponder Heart. You probably read Eudora Welty in eighth grade. We certainly did in Mississippi. But anyway, so this writer asked her about her, um, her ideal day, and it's just... 
it's like it's just such a lovely description of being an introvert. I think that's why I liked it so much. Yeah, I don't know. Did you guys did you guys enjoy this little peek into Eudora Welty's weird world? Yeah, it's so like it, it sounds so relaxing, you know? It's like <laughs> there there are no expectations whatsoever for her day. She doesn't she doesn't care what she does, you know? It's yeah. it's just like I just kind of want to be in my house. Yeah. Yeah, totally. yeah. She wants to. She wants to get up, have her coffee, breakfast, and get to work. Yeah, and just have the day. At the end of the day, about five or six, she'll stop for good and have a drink, a bourbon and water. I'm guessing she has a little less water than she's alluding to in that bourbon. And she's guessing from Mississippi. She does. Yeah, watch, watch the evening news. To me, Blair Hour, PBS, and then they could do anything I wanted to. Yeah, the 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 beauty of the ordinary, right? Like, yeah. I mean, there's the we live in a disenchanted world. I mean, that's part of what it means to be a modern person. And what makes this so outstanding to me, just it sort of jumps off the page, is her description of the ordinary sounds so enchanting. Mm, yeah. And enchanted. Yeah. I feel like I don't have the courage to say that my ideal day is as plain, you know? Like, I feel like if I were to talk about my ideal day, it would just be so full of activity. You know, there would be so many... So many things to do, fun things, but it would just be an active existence, you know, and, and it's just so great that she, yeah, it's so plain. Yeah, yeah, it really is. It really is. Yeah, there was like a, I feel like it was Tina Fey, didn't she? She did a bunch of ads for American Express and she did like an ideal day was, was one part of one of the ads and it was just chocked full of stuff. It was like she was going to write, she was going to make breakfast with her kids, she was going to go shopping for groceries, she, you know, it was like, and then I remember at the end there was like a, a little asterisk that it said, um, this day might not actually be able to happen or something like this day might actually, you know, not be based in reality. And I look at you, Dora Wealthy's day. I'm like, that's, that's a realistic, you know, that's a lovely day. So, yeah. Yeah. It's funny because I, I contrast her ideal day with this piece. Where's it? It's, this is from the McSweeney's mm-hmm. blog, right? Ethan, we've used this yeah. stuff before. This is yep. uh, Becca Pierce's honest excerpts from your acquaintance's travel blog. And she says that I didn't understand that selling all of my stuff to live minimally would mean I would be essentially homeless. I was pretty sure that all of my problems were from my job, but it turns out my problems are from my mother's criticism. So they've just followed me around the world. I was an American white girl in college. She studied abroad in a trendy European country. And I really thought this trip was going to be like that. Unfortunately, it involved a lot less drinking and a lot more terrifying hostile encounters. That highly (laughs) filtered Instagram of the meal is the only thing I've eaten in two days. Sometimes I don't do anything, but sit in the hostel and watch Pretty Little Liars. <laughs> oh, man. Excellent. It's just interesting, though, because there, there are two kinds of descriptions of ordinariness, one disenchanted and one enchanted, mm-hmm. and one seeming to take the day as a gift to be received, and the other seeing it as a reality to be achieved. Mm-hmm. And, and maybe somehow that's like the law of gospel way of looking at time. But when something, when time becomes a gift that can be received, there's an enchantment to, to it, or there can be moment by moment. But when it's sort of looked at as something that has to produce something to meet our expectations or someone else's, or even God's, that it's probably more suffocating than enchanting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I uh, this hit really close to home for me because we did a lot of traveling this summer and some of it was awesome and some of it was really hard. And I would get, you know, a glass of wine with some of my friends when we got home and I was telling them some of the really hard stuff as we do when we're having a glass of wine with our friends. And they were like, 
a gap. I mean, they're like, but your Instagram feed looked so fun. Everything just looks so amazing. How could this be true? You know? And, um, anyway, so it, 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 it makes me ask this piece actually as funny as it is, made me ask some more difficult questions about, um, you know, only telling the shiny story and, I don't know, all that same age old question we talk about a lot on here, but like what, you know, what is the purpose of social media? What story are we telling? And in some ways I see those, you know, I see things like Instagram, especially as like, um, almost like a scrapbook of a way to kind of capture these family memories. I say this is a woman who never did baby books for either of my children. And I still feel very guilty about that. Um, but I also wonder about like what sort of vacation glory story am I telling and, and who am I making feel horrible about their own existence, <laughs> you know? So yeah, this, th- it was a light piece, but it, it hit some pretty heavy stuff. There's like this Instagram, uh, this Instagram account I follow and it's all of these like really cool, like, uh, refabbed, like, like land cruisers and, and trucks that are just like driving, you know, along the West coast and they're camping and they're like living this really, um, (laughs) this really like amazing kind of travel log experience. And I just think like, that's what I ought to be doing. Like that's, that's, those guys are taking the bull by the horns. And instead, like you don't see the fact that like they haven't, they've eaten the same meal for like 17 days and they haven't showered and like they're sick of the people with them, you know, but it's just so, it's so true that like some of the most comforting things are the moments when you're just sitting in a room with someone who allows you to be completely yourself on the couch with your wife, live streaming or streaming like Netflix with your screens. Like there's something comforting about that. Totally. Full circle. Well, friends, may you receive an ordinary day and may this podcast be received by many, I hope, with joy. And I will talk to you all next week. Bye, guys. See you guys later. Thanks for listening to The Mockingcast. As always, you can find any of the content we referred to in the podcast on our website, mbird.com. If you like what you heard, please share it on social media or maybe even drop by iTunes and give us a rating. Write a review. We exist because the enthusiasm, support, and generosity of you, our listeners and readers. For that, we thank you. Have a great weekend, and we'll see you next week.